Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And a warm welcome to First Move this Wednesday amid warnings of a possible attack on Europe's biggest nuclear power facility in Ukraine. The Kremlin says the potential for sabotage to the Zaporizhia plant by Kyiv is high, quote. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is the only source of danger, quote, to the facility. CNN's Scott McLean has been monitoring developments. Julia, the rhetoric has really ramped up here. And of course, when we're talking about Europe's largest nuclear power plant, there is not a heck of a lot of room for error or potential miscalculation. But President Zelensky is now making a very bold and very specific allegation, and that is that Ukrainian intelligence has information that objects that look like explosive devices have been placed on the roofs of several power units of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, perhaps to simulate a Ukrainian attack on the plant. This is a suggestion that he's made a few days ago, but hasn't provided any evidence as yet. Zelensky insisted in his nightly address that, quote, Russia is the only source of danger when it comes to the plant. Now, Zelensky is essentially repeating what the military, the Ukrainian military, has previously said, and that is that uh, any kind of explosion they believe would look like Ukrainian shelling, but wouldn't be strong enough to actually damage the power units themselves. Last week, Ukraine started doing drills amongst emergency services, according to the deputy defense minister, happening in four regions to prepare for the fallout of any potential terrorist attack carried out by Russia on the plant. The Zaporizhia local governor on the Ukrainian side also says that Ukrainian special forces are also prepared for this kind of outcome if it were to come to it. The Russians, though, of course, they deny that there is any kind of a threat coming from their side. They've previously pointed out that IAEA inspectors are on site and they have the run of the place if they would like to. And today the Kremlin spokesperson said that the situation is high, but insisted that the threat is from the Ukrainian side and that the potential for sabotage is high and obviously warned that the consequences would be, in his words, catastrophic. The Russians also say that they're taking their own measures in that uh, possible outcome. Now, the reactors themselves are housed in containment buildings, which are meant to be able to withstand the force of an accidentally crashed plane. What would happen, you know, when weapons of war were fired in that direction? We simply don't have a clear answer to that. And also remember that there are cooling ponds that are right out in the open that are used to store those spent nuclear fuel rods, and they have no protection at all. The good news here is that there have been some reassuring statements coming out of the nuclear officials on both the Ukrainian side and the Russian occupied side as well, saying that essentially the situation is stable. The background radiation levels are normal. The uh, Russian occupied side called uh, the Ukrainian claims of potential Russian false flag operations, quote, garbage. Julia? Hmm. 
And to the Middle East now, where tensions remain high after Israeli forces say they've launched new airstrikes in Gaza after a Palestinian rocket attack. The attack comes just hours after Israeli forces withdrew from Jenin after completing their largest military operation in the West Bank in 20 years. The operation was centered on a refugee camp that Israeli officials called, quote, a hornet's nest for terrorist activity. Palestinian officials say at least 12 people lost their lives and more than 100 were injured in the airstrikes and subsequent raids. Funerals are now underway for those killed, with thousands marching in the streets. Haddis Gold joins us now. Haddis, you can talk to me about the aftermath and the cleanup operation in Janine set to come, but can you talk to me also about the airstrikes on Gaza? What more do we know about that and what the target was? Well, Julian, what happened was as the military, Israeli military, was leaving Janine, five rockets were fired by Palestinian militants in Gaza towards southern Israel. Now, the Israeli military is saying all five were intercepted, but the Israeli military then, in retaliation, struck some Hamas sites, what they said were Hamas weapons and rocket sites in Gaza. Now, we don't have any injuries reported either in Gaza or in southern Israel. There's just material damages. And, and to be honest, that what happened in Gaza is sort of a side story to really what is the main story, and that is what's been happening in Jenin. So the Israeli military is saying that they're uh, military operation, this incursion into Janine is now over after nearly two full days, the largest military, Israeli military operation in the occupied West Bank since uh, the days of the Second Intifada, since 2002. And they were, as they say, trying to dismantle Janine as a safe haven for militants. They say that they found dozens of weapons storage sites. They say that they found hundreds of explosives. They say that they tore up IEDs in the streets, and that's why they took those bulldozers to the streets. Of course, for the civilians there, thousands of civilians fled the refugee camp over the last two days to try to avoid the violence. We do know that one Israeli soldier was killed during this two-day operation. We believe that he was killed yesterday, and 12 Palestinians were killed as well. Now, the Israeli military is asserting that all of those killed were combatants, and we are hearing from militant groups that they are claiming at least some of them as their fighters. We do know, though, that amongst the more than 100 injured, and the Israeli military is acknowledging this as well, that civilians were injured. And we just look at the aftermath of what happened in the Janine refugee camp. You can understand why, of course, there would be some civilians caught in the crossfire, just the sheer amount of damages, not only to the roads and to houses, to buildings, even to hospitals, but also to the infrastructure there. The electricity and water was severely damaged during this operation. We are hearing just in the last couple hours now that electricity seems to potentially be coming back to some people there but it is extensive damage and there will be extensive cleanup there have been funerals today for all 12 of those palestinians that were killed they are being buried in a uh, in a grave altogether and what's notable during these funeral processions that thousands attended are two things one thing is that militants were out in the open there. These were masked militants with their guns shooting off with their flags. And I think that's a clear message to the Israelis and to others saying, we're still here. You might have had this big, massive operation saying that you've reached your objectives, but whatever you say about trying to remove Janine as a safe haven for militants, the militants still felt 
you know, confident enough to go out on the streets during these funerals and to show off, essentially. Another thing that's interesting that's happened is during some of the funerals, Palestinian Authority officials were chased out by angry crowds. Now, you can take that as two ways, both the, potentially as the Palestinian Authority not having much authority in Janine, but also potentially anger at the Palestinian Authority over what happened over the last two days, perhaps a feeling that the Palestinian Authority didn't do enough or didn't do anything to try to, uh, to stave off this offensive by the Israeli military. Julia. Yeah, certainly seems to be a, a show of resilience. Hadis Gold, thank you for that. Now, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is in Japan trying to ease fears surrounding the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant. The IAEA is saying Tuesday that releasing treated radioactive water from the plant is safe, both for people and the environment. But many remain concerned and their worries are shared by the Chinese government too. Mark Stewart has the details. Even though Japan is moving forward to release the treated wastewater from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant sometime this summer, there are still some critics. The reservations come from here in Japan. For example, fishermen worried about their reputation. That's in addition to skepticism across Asia and other parts of the world. CNN traveled to the plant in April. There we saw some of the facilities used to filter and dilute the water. While there will be remnants of a radioactive element known as tritium, it falls under the international standards according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Japan wants to gradually release more than one million metric tons of filtered water in the Pacific, part of the process to slowly decommission the plant. Still, not everyone is convinced this is the right thing to do, including the Chinese government. It's a topic that came up at a recent briefing at its Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The report cannot greenlight the discharge as it cannot prove that ocean discharge is the only option or the safest and most reliable option. China once again urges Japan to, in a responsible attitude for the whole humanity in our future generations, stop pushing through the discharge plan. The IAEA will establish an office here in Japan to monitor the process, a task that could take years to complete. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo. Okay, coming up here on First Move, defending Dubai. The CEO of Crescent Petroleum tells us why he thinks the UAE is the ideal bridge between rich and poorer nations in the quest for a sustainable climate. We're talking COP28. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Just days after Saudi Arabia and Russia announced further cuts to crude output, an OPEC conference on the future of energy is getting going in Vienna. This week, the Saudis extended their cut of one million barrels per day through August, while Russia said it's cutting exports by another half a million barrels. Oil prices, of course, remain a key driver of global inflation and economic growth, even as the world looks to renewable forms of energy. No nation understands that better than the UAE, one of the largest oil producers and host of this year's COP28 summit. And our next guest says the Emirates are the perfect bridge between, quote, hypercritical richer nations with their hypocritical, forgive me, richer countries with their recent ramp up of subsidies and use of other energy sources like coal and sceptical poorer nations that are badly in need of more finance for adapting to a warmer climate. And joining us now is Majid Jafar, CEO of Crescent Petroleum, the Middle East's largest privately owned oil and gas company. Majid, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's just touch on those um, shifts by the Saudis and by Russia in the past week. The oil price barely reacted. It's tough to sort of penetrate the belief that we're not going to see a significant rise, I think, in oil demand this year. Is that your thinking too? So I think, you know, there are clearly some of the big uh, national producers who would like to keep the price within the sort of $80 to $100 range. At the moment, the bearish sentiments that are keeping it slightly below that uh, are driven by two factors. One is fears of persistent inflation and risk of recession. Uh, and the other is the less than, uh, less than expected rebound economically in China. And so fundamentally, it still boils down to demand and supply. And of course, your show has been covering those two trends. And they're ultimately the trends, in my view, that are going to dictate the oil price. Yeah, I mean, we do our best. Um, there's far less noise, I think, and concern than there was in the initial stages of the outbreak of, of war in Ukraine, which has been a key determinant, I think, and, and a driver of this too. The irony is, and, and you've pointed it out in a number of op-eds, and it sort of ties to the bigger conversation that we're going to have, that um, in light of that, we saw effective energy subsidies rise, particularly in European nations, um, a use of dirtier forms of energy like coal, despite the push from those richer nations to the global south and poorer nations that we need to transition to renewable energies. It's sort of created a a level of discontent, I think you call it, and it's a good word heading into COP28. How deep is that sort of resentment and the challenge between the two sides? Sort of a do as I say, don't do as I do. Exactly, uh, which never worked when when parents try it, uh, and, and we've seen that uh, we've we've seen that in in, in multiple international organisations. But COP uh, is one, also the UN, World Bank, IMF, and and so on. So fundamentally, energy is the lifeblood of any economy. But it's like health for a human being; you can take it for granted when you have it. But when suddenly, as in last winter, uh, supplies were put at risk it becomes uh, everybody's priority 
And we need to balance the affordability and the availability with the sustainability, the, the so-called energy trilemma. At the moment, we're failing on all three. And the policies that have been pushed of starving investment from key sectors such as oil and gas in the hope that that would somehow lead to uh, dealing with climate change. That makes about as much sense as trying to deal with obesity by denying loans to farmers and doing nothing about how the consumption takes place, because that's ultimately what's driving the emissions. So as you said, the developing countries see uh, that they are supposed to make do with intermittent uh, supplies, not have finance for stable power supply, while Western countries have been burning more coal, have been subsidizing energy consumption, although they, they don't use uh, the word, but that's ultimately what the energy support uh, has been, and is also going scrambling around the developing countries, such as in Africa, to buy natural gas from those countries in the form of LNG for their own use, when they had previously refused to finance it for domestic use. So there is this growing divide. And last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, the language turned to loss and damage, essentially reparations. The developing world asking richer countries to compensate them for the damage caused by the climate change. Yeah, I think your um, parent-child analogy is an interesting one, um, in particular because it's bad parenting taking place in many respects, um, if, if that's the case. Let's talk about the money, because we were just talking to um, the climate envoy, U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, about a recent meeting on a global financing pact, and he was talking about among many things, the importance of the private sector in leveraging cash to help some of these nations mitigate the effects of climate change, but also enact the process of transition, which we're simply not seeing enough of. But also perhaps some of the bigger institutions like the IMF and the World Bank changing their business model. You obviously come from the sort of private sector of this. What do you think is most potent, particularly given the sheer level of uh, investment in renewables that we're seeing in the UAE and the Middle East for all the criticism? So, so the, the private sector is important, but ultimately it's going to take government support. And the mm. Western countries that promised $100 billion a year back in 2009, and that hasn't come forward. What we're seeing instead is the U.S. wanting to spend a trillion dollars at home, Europe wanting to spend a trillion euros within the EU, even though emissions in those two regions have actually been falling for decades. And it's leading to a sort of trade protectionism and, and competition between the EU and US at the expense of the developing world. P people like John Kerry and others will admit that actually the developing world needs more like a trillion dollars a year. And Prime Minister um, Modi has, of India has made that, that point. So one thing that people have called for is a new institution, like a world carbon bank that can channel both the funds and the technical assistance from the Western countries that have actually been responsible for most of the carbon emissions to the developing countries. You mentioned the UAE, a massive investor in all forms of energy, including renewables, in over 40 countries around the world uh, th through, uh, through Mustar, which is why I think it makes a natural host for the upcoming COP28 meeting uh, in Dubai as a bridge between the, the growing north-south divide that, that we can see currently. 
there was initial scepticism. Do you think some of that has dissipated now? Certainly from my conversations in previous um, COPs, there's been a lack of engagement from the oil and gas community, a sense that they're purely the problem and are excluded from the discussions of how we transition and the interim period, not just the short term and then the long term, but how we ensure we don't have an energy crisis in the middle of that process of transition. I know that's crucial to your business, um, the majority of which, of course, is in gas. So COP26 was in, was in uh, Scotland, an oil and gas producer. COP27 was in Egypt, an oil and gas producer. Yes. <laughs> uh, we're going to need oil, oil and gas uh, for decades to come. Those calling for an end in investment in oil and gas, they have the right to, to do that, but they should then stop using it. Don't ride any cars, trains, boats. Don't use any computers that are made of oil, smartphones. Don't rely on heat and, and, or air conditioning, depending on where you live, for 24 hours, because none of that is possible without oil and gas. And by starving the investment, you're, you're leading to price shocks, supply shocks, and you're actually leading to more energy poverty and burning of coal in developing uh, countries. So the, the basic approach that's been taken thus far uh, has failed. From our point of view, as a major producer of gas, we now 85% of our production in the Middle East is natural gas. We brought our emissions and flaring down to near zero and offset the remainder with carbon credits supporting renewable energy in, in Asia to declare and achieve net zero across our operations uh, back in 21. And we've maintained that. But more importantly, the gas we produce by displacing diesel actually avoids more than 5 million tons of CO2 emissions annually, which is actually more than all the Tesla cars uh, on the planet. So the role of gas in the transition, displacing coal as it has in UK and the US or liquid fuels in, in our region in the Middle East is fundamental. And you're still going to need oil. Everything the transition will rely upon, whether it's the electric cars themselves, solar panels uh, or wind turbines, they're actually all made of oil. Uh, and so how we use it will change. We won't be burning it as much. It'll be making things. And how we produce it must get cleaner. But there is an important role for the sector. And just deplatforming oil, gas, nuclear, and coal, as happened, unfortunately, in Glasgow at COP26, the, mm. the, the sector is responsible for 90% of world energy, is not going to lead to positive outcomes. So I think this inclusive COP that's coming up in Dubai will bring together all sectors and all countries for hopefully a much better way forward. Fingers crossed. Um, and to your point, I think there's been already chronic underinvestment, which we're paying for and will pay a greater price for. Very quickly, because I have about a minute. Fast forward 20 years for your business. What's the makeup then? You said you're 85% now um, focused on oil. What's the split in 20 years? So 85% currently uh, sorry, natural gas. gas. Sorry, uh, yes, uh, gas. Which, which I think <laughs> is going to be a, an important part, not just of the transition. I mean, the reality is today, solar and wind power can't be stored. All the batteries in the world can store about one and a half minutes of global energy demand. So until we've tackled that storage challenge, and there are physics uh, laws that are sort of in the way, we will need something to back it up. So nuclear that you've just been talking about and natural gas are the cleaner forms of stable power, which then enable renewables. So, so far, renewables is growing, but it's a supplement to the other forms of energy rather than a replacement. And that's the reality. Yeah. yeah.
something's got to give and the investment has to dramatically ramp up. Um, I'm just scratching the surface. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Um, I've run out of time. I'd love to talk more in depth about your business and forgive me for the oil gas switch, natural gas. And I did know that. Majid Jafar, the CEO of Crescent Petroleum there, said thank you and fingers crossed for COP28. Okay, still to come. Take a look at what might become the passenger plane of the future. Its developers promise to take you halfway around the world at just a fraction of today's speeds. The CEO joins us next. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Welcome back to First Move. It's nearly 20 years since the Concorde made its final commercial flight, ending the first era of supersonic travel. Well, now one company is rewriting the rules. European startup Destinus wants to use hydrogen-fueled engines for sustainable long-range flight, designing a plane that it says will fly at five times the speed of sound one day. That would cut travel times between any two cities by three quarters. Destinus is moving full speed ahead, having successfully flight tested two prototypes and revealing the Destinus 3 at the Paris Air Show last month. The plan is to launch the world's first commercial hypersonic plane by 2030. Joining us now to discuss all, Mikhail Kokoric. He is the founder and CEO of Destinus. Mikhail, great to have you on the show. The hope is that you can provide something super fast and, and super clean. And hydrogen is the way of doing it. Just explain the technology behind these flights and what you're hoping to achieve. Yes, thank you. We believe that hydrogen, not only the clean fuel for the future aviation, but it also enabler of hypersonic speed. Because flying hypersonic, it means to be hot. It's like meteorite. When you enter atmosphere at high speed, you are hot. And hydrogen, it's not only the highest energy density fuel, it's also the very the best coolant that you can imagine. So you can use hydrogen to cool your plane and cool the air that comes inside the engines to make able to fly faster. Okay, so just to be clear, no plane I don't think has ever reached supersonic speed powered by hydrogen, and we're going to come back to that. But let's just talk about the prototype, because I believe that that integrates hydrogen afterburners into the turbojet, and then ramjet engines, which can run on traditional fuel. So you're sort of hedging your bets in some regard, at least as far as the prototype is concerned. When do you expect to be fully hydrogen for both? So the next year, we're going to start flying with a hydrogen afterburner and with a turbojet engine be fueled by kerosene. Okay. And the purpose of this is basically to demonstrate that you can fly with a hydrogen afterburner and finally with a hydrogen precooler. But then, in the basically, year after, we're going to fly entirely with a hydrogen, both on the turbojet engine and in afterburner. There are clearly still skeptics out there that are saying, look, 
and despite your talk of the coolant and the cooling power, that they're not comfortable burning hydrogen in an aircraft. And actually the amount of hydrogen simply that it takes to send a plane on, on long distances. And also, where do you store it on the plane? Mikael, go through each one of those separately and explain why you're not worried or you have a solution. Yes, definitely hydrogen, it's a very low density fuel. So with a basically the same proportion of the fuel by mass, like with a conventional subsonic plane, 30 to 40%, your volume wise, you basically spend 60 or 65% of the volume for hydrogen. So your plane, it's look a little bit like a rocket, where the, actually the fuel is almost everywhere. Yeah, and this is like one of the big changes. But if you look to uh, any new hydrogen concept, even subsonic one, you will see that they really have much bigger fuel tanks. And this is a disadvantage of hydrogen. But at the same time, hydrogen four to five times better fuel than kerosene by mass. Okay. Talk to me about what we're seeing on screen, because I'm sure you can see it. This is um, an aircraft that's expecting to carry how many people, at least in the beginning? Yeah, so uh, the initially we want to build a I would say reasonably small aircraft. It's not small, it's maybe the size of Boeing 737, but because it's, a, as I told, a lot of volume for the hydrogen, this plane will be able to carry a few dozens of people, 20 to 30 people. And this plane will be able to fly from Paris to New York in one hour and a half. Wow. But the main advantage of this plane is that you can use basically existing turbojet engines and basically augment these engines with the hydrogen fuel so you don't need to reinvent the core, the most complex core in the engine, turbo, turbojet part, it can be the same. You just put hydrogen after burner, you put precooler, you put ramjet, which is a pretty simple engine, and then you can basically fly. You, you may still have turbojets on a kerosene, or you can convert turbojet to kerosene, but still it's not a development of the new engine, which is a humongous exercise. And then at, in some years, 10 years after this, we'll be able to build much bigger plane with the new turbojet engines, with bigger, much bigger one. Yeah, and this is the key. That's why those two questions seemingly disconnected but are connected, because there are also those that say, look, the best use of hydrogen, if we're talking aviation, is with e-fuels. So a sort of synthetic form of a sustainable aviation fuel, um, rather than design an entirely different propulsion system for an aircraft, which is kind of what we're talking about here. I agree that sustainable aviation fuel is very valuable option for subsonic flights, where the basically the main motive motivation to move to another fuel is like uh, the cleanness or the green concern yeah, of the kerosene. But when you're talking about hypersonic flight, this is a uh, in fact the absolutely new reality for the plane because plane flying with a, such a high speed, five six of speed of sounds, so then the, some parts of your plane start to be extremely hot, and also that air that come to your air intake, mm. become very hot, which reduce efficiency of your engine. And then here's the hydrogen advantage. So hydrogen is 50 times better coolant than kerosene. So you can use the same hydrogen, which you combust in your engine before to cool your structure, cool your air, and you can build it from more or less conventional materials like a steel. You don't need to put on top of your vehicle the ceramic tiles like a space shuttle, which is very uh, fragile, and very heavy. You can use steel like a starship uh, like on a starship rocket and pull the steel with the hydrogen which make your plane much cheaper and more reliable 
Oh, it's, I'm very excited at the prospect of seeing one of these. What was the response that you got at the Paris Air Show? And I'm sure one of the first questions you were asked beyond the safety was, um, how much is this going to cost me? How does it compare to an average commercial aircraft flight ticket? Let's assume business class. Yeah. It's actually very, a very good question. But, you know, in the cost of the uh, flight, the main component is the cost of fuel. Yes. Because the cost of plane, it's actually depreciates uh, depreciate over the dozens of years of, of flights. So if you're talking about the fuel, actually hydrogen is not as bad fuel as you can imagine. So for the hypersonic flight, for example, when you fly, let's say from New York to Singapore on a bigger plane, on a future bigger plane, for every passenger, you need to spend approximately half a ton of hydrogen. Yes, now the hydrogen is pretty expensive. It's $10,000 per ton. But uh, with the increasing the scales of the production of the hydrogen, the anticipated long-term cost of hydrogen, like according to any projection of McKinsey, will be down to 2000 or even less. So it mm. means that actually the fuel component of your ticket will be less than $1,000 which is a very comparable with a, with a normal long-range flight. And so we hope that this future hypersonic aviation will not be only faster, much faster. You don't need actually any, even in flight entertainment. You just sit down and <laughs> fly and enjoy. Uh, it will be also uh, economically uh, viable. So it will be comparable by the price with the conventional or maybe even cheaper because it means less crew, less serving. It means the plane can be utilized much more frequently, so your depreciation is much faster. So we don't think it should be more expensive than conventional flights. Wow. Um, very quickly, hypersonic flight has to be interesting to nation states, the United States, to China, to the EU, for example. I saw a competitor that you have, Hermius. They're backed by the US Air Force in part. I know you've raised 50 million euros. Don't governments need to be more involved in supporting innovation and research in this? What conversations are you having Absolutely. on that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is a, one of the interesting domains which is supported by many governments. And you, mm. you're absolutely right talked about Hermes, which actually supported also by Sam Altman, the founder of OpenAI. I saw. He was my partner. <laughs> yeah, during, when I was in the Y Combinator, it was my previous company. Uh, China have very active hypersonic plane program and a couple like, a, let's say, semi-private government companies is doing uh, some stuff. We are entirely private company, but we have several uh, supporting R&D fundings from European Union, from Spanish government to develop uh, hydrogen technologies, hydrogen propulsion. And also we are part of the big study funded by European Union, ECO2, together with EASA, with Eurocontrol, with Airbus, to develop the new flight rules and regulations for supersonic, mm -hmm. hypersonic flights, for suborbital flights. So it means the governments now not only financially supporting and the players like like Hermes, like us, but also they're thinking how this flight should look like, what should be the flight protocols, how they should integrate in the normal traffic. And it's not just, it's, a, it's actually a big project for a couple of years with a couple of dozens of millions of euro and leading player in this like uh, project, uh, the regulators like EASA Eurocontrol. And we are responsible yeah. for hypersonic part of this study. So exciting. Speed and sustainability for when we get there. Fingers crossed. Um, Mikhail, great to chat to you. We'll speak soon. The founder and CEO of Destinus. Thank you, sir. We're back after this. Thank you.
Welcome back to First Move and a busy week already on the show. Wall Street back to work after the July 4th holiday break and U.S. Treasury Secretary Yellen heading to China for talks. Lots at stake. A new Chinese export ban means computer chips may be harder to make. And then there's Meta set to give Twitter a social media shake that could certainly keep Elon Musk awake. Its thread service set to be released tomorrow. The question is, will users partake? Lots to keep Wall Street traders busy this Wednesday. Make no mistake. Oh, my goodness, I'm still going. A stop start to the trading day. The first full day of trade, actually, on Wall Street this week. Cautious trade ahead of the release of the Federal Reserve minutes later today. And an important job. Jobs data number on Friday as well. And finally, on first move, talk about too close for comfort. Just take a look at this. No, this is not a scene from the movie Jaws. It's a video taken in Florida earlier this week when a shark was seen swimming very close to bathers. Now, people were quickly ordered out of the water. No one was injured. People online saying sharks are often seen in this area. Officials saying it's no cause for alarm. Easy for them to say. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.